Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. Immerse yourself in the next generation of blockbuster entertainment at Universal Studios Florida. Journey through legendary worlds of incredible heroes at Universal's Islands of Adventure. And live the carefree island life at Universal's Volcano Bay. An all-new water-themed park. Wow. For your next vacation, get your ticket to thrills and relaxation at UniversalOrlando.com. Woo! Warning. Binge Mode contains adult content. Yes, I know what you're thinking. They are now second years, and how can Binge Mode contain adult content? There's going to be a lot of gambling talk, for one, and children shouldn't gamble, and there'll be some other talk as well. So listen, if tell that's Megalian. not— Or tell noted friend of the program, Lucius Malfoy. <laughs> if that's not what you're into, please check out Shack House. One more warning. Binge Mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know whose favorite color is lilac, Ooh. please proceed with extreme caution. And now, Binge Mode. Please, sir. Don't legends always have a basis in fact? Professor Binns was looking at her in such amazement. Harry was sure no student had ever interrupted him before, alive or dead. Well said Professor Bin slowly. Yes, one could argue that, I suppose. He peered at Hermione as though he had never seen a student properly before. Mm, however, a legend of which you speak is such a very sensational, even ludicrous sale. But the whole class was now hanging on Professor Bin's every word. He looked dimly at them all. Every face turned to his. Harry could tell he was completely thrown by such an unusual show of interest. Oh, very well. Let me see. The Chamber of Secrets. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Joining me today. Yes. Now that he's finished clarifying that he didn't get rid of the band on Banshee by smiling at her. That's correct. It's a Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, mm. Jason Concepcion. Hello. Hi. Mal. Yeah. It's me, Jason Concepcion, Order of Merlin, third class, honorary member of the Dark Force Defense League, and five-time winner of Witch's Weekly Most Charming Smile Award. But I don't talk about that, at least not at length. Instead, I'll talk about binge mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Be you Mandrake or Pixie, disembodied voice, or very corporeal slug, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us five points only, five stars only. Five stars only. Only five stars. One, two, three, four, five. Count them in your hand for binge mode. And please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscores, because there's now two. <laughs> and join our Facebook group, which is only for binge mode fans, which is a great place to shop your gently, gently, gently marked copies of Magical Me, the story of my life. 
Don't buy Ron's copy. It's covered in slug vomit. It's okay. Yesterday on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how obstacles shape the opening five chapters of the second book in the series, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And on today's episode, we are diving deep, 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 deep. Into chapter six through ten of Chamber. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge. As always, while those five chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep on details from all seven books and eight movies and the wider Potter canon. Wide canon. Taking the entire series into account from the moment we lay eyes on those seven greenish blurs atop their Nimbus 2001s. One of the many recruiting violations in this story. (laughs) Very tough. That one, listen, at least he's not like a school faculty member. Yeah, well, those are always the ones you really have to watch There's a loophole there. I'm just saying there's a loophole. Mark Emmert is coming for you, Lucius. It's technically a gift. (laughs) Impermissible benefit? I'm just saying, like, if you keep it under a certain amount of galleons, (laughs) it's technically okay. He bought it through a shell company, I'm sure. So keep your nose pinched and your ears sharp, because it's time to head to the death day party. Mal, yeah. be careful of the venomous tentacula. It's teething, and I need you bite-free, because it's time to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in chapters 6 through 10 by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot the Hogwarts Express. Choo-choo! Chapter six, Gilderoy Lockhart. What a guy. <laughs> the students are sitting for breakfast when Errol, the Weasley's bedraggled owl, arrives with a letter for Ron. Old wings, loud words. <laughs> it's a howler from Molly to her youngest son, haranguing him for stealing the family car. Later in Professor Sprout's herbology class, the students learn about the medicinal powers and heart-stopping cries of the mandrake. This will become important later in the book. Colin Creevy, a starry-eyed first year, pops up over the course of the school day, as he will continue to do until he gets petrified. Spoiler. (laughs) Eager to snap pictures of Harry doing chosen one things. Like standing there. Like standing there like a normal (laughs) student. Harry, Ron, and Hermione go to their first Defense Against the Dark Arts class of the year with Professor Lockhart. It is... An unmitigated disaster. After a pop quiz on Gilderoy Lockhart's favorite things, (laughs) 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 Professor Lockhart releases a gaggle of Cornish pixies. They quickly wreck the room, nearly killing Neville in the process. Poor Neville. (laughs) Nearly had to have bells for Neville here. (laughs) The almost chosen one almost dying yet again. (laughs) Lockhart is disarmed. And then flees, leaving Harry, Ron, and Hermione to clean up the mess. Chapter 7, Mud, Bloods, and Murmurs, which sounds like an indie rock album. Oliver Wood rouses Harry at the break of dawn for Quidditch practice. Wood is a new training regimen, which involves, early starts, as mentioned, and all-weather training. Just as the session begins, the Slytherin team, with their new sinker, Draco Malfoy, arrive with their brand new Nimbus 2001's 2001 presence. From one Lucius Malfoy, an argument over who reserved the field devolves into nastiness, culminating in Draco calling Hermione a mudblood. Ron comes to her defense, but his broken wand backfires, and he spends the rest of the day at Hagrid's vomiting up slugs. Mm. Gross. Better out than in. During detention with Professor Lockhart, Harry, and only Harry, 
hears an icy voice saying, Let me rip you. Let me tear you. Let me kill you. Some kinky shit. (laughs) Damn. God, what the hell is going on? This parcel tongue. Let me choke you, daddy. (laughs) (sighs) Holy shit. Chapter eight, the death day party. The Halloween season arrives, bearing illness and heavy rain. Filch, somehow in an even fouler mood than usual, takes Harry to his office for punishment for the crime of tracking mud into the castle. There, Harry finds a letter on Filch's desk for a magical correspondence Uh course. Quick spell. And we will come to discover in the next chapter that Filch is a squib. Harry, Ron, and Hermione attend nearly headless Nick's death day party. And there they meet the mopey and lacrimose ghost of the out-of-order girls' bathroom, Moaning Myrtle. Leaving the party, Harry hears the voice again. This time, seems to be moving upward through the castle. Ron and Hermione can't hear it, but they follow Harry, and all three stumble across a nightmarish scene. There's graffiti on the wall reading, The Chamber of Secrets has been opened. Enemies of the air beware. And, hanging underneath it, by her tail, Filch's cat, Mrs. Norris. God damn it. Stiff as a board. Protect Mrs. Norris. They consider fleeing, but before they can, students leaving dinner, Malfoy among them, walk up. Enemies of the air, beware! Malfoy yells, you'll be next, mudbloods. Chapter 9, The Writing on the Wall. Dumbledore, McGonagall, Snape, Lockhart, Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Filch. It's a party! Filch is furious and distraught as they all head from the scene for a chat in Lockhart's office. Dumbledore tells the group that Mrs. Norris is not dead. Thank the gods, but rather petrified. Filch believes Harry is responsible. No, Dumbledore says. This is dark magic beyond any second year's ability. Which Filch wouldn't know since he can't do magic. (laughs) To Filch, everything, every bit of magic is incredible. And everyone could be like, oh my God. Days later in History of Magic, Hermione asks Professor Binns about the Chamber of Secrets, and he reluctantly tells the students about the rift that tore apart the founders of the school. Oh, Miss Grant. Uh Aha. Legend has it that one of them, Salazar Slytherin, created a chamber hidden in the school which could only be opened by his true heir. Our heroes. Naturally, they can never really quit a mystery, can they? Mm -mm. Wandering around, and hey, they go back to the scene of the crime. We're here. Let's do a little detective work. Remembering that the floor was wet the night that they found the message in Mrs. Norris, they enter the nearby girl's bathroom, which is where Moaning Myrtle resides. Back in the common room, a plan is hatched. Get into the Slytherin common room to spy on Malfoy to see if he's the heir of Slytherin. How do we do it? Polyjuice potion. Chapter 10. The Rogue Bludger. Hermione, using a... Absurdly easily obtained note yes, from quite easily. the beautiful dunce Gilderoy Lockhart. Obtains a book from the restricted section containing the recipe for the aforementioned polyjuice potion. She tells Ron and Harry what they will need, and some of the ingredients will be very difficult to acquire. In a strange but delightful reversal, Hermione is the one who's all about breaking the rules, while Ron and Harry are hesitant. The potion, she tells them, won't just be hard to acquire ingredients for, it will take time. It won't be ready for a month. (laughs) Nobody go in the bathroom. We're cooking polyjuice in there for a month. On the Quidditch pitch, in a crucial match against Slytherin, crucial, Harry once again catches the snitch, all while dodging a bludger that's been apparently sabotaged. The bludger breaks Harry's arm and Lockhart makes it worse by causing Harry's arm bones to disappear. 
Harry goes to Madame Pomfrey's ward to regrow his bones. And that night, Dobby comes a call and the elf confirms that it was he that sealed the barrier at King's Cross and he that sent the bludger to try to keep Harry away from Hogwarts because of the Chamber of Secrets. But as to who is behind its reopening, he will not say. The sudden appearance of Dumbledore and McGonagall carrying a petrified Colin Creevy scares Dobby away. Harry overhears Dumbledore also confirm that the chamber is real and open. The question is not who, said Dumbledore. The question is how. I don't know. Why Why don't you figure it out? You're just fucking headmaster. <laughs> what are you doing? Anyway. Jason? Yes. Homework. Aha. Uh-huh. Compose a poem about my defeat of the Wagga Wagga werewolf. Signed copies of Magical Binge to the author of The Best One. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 6 through 10 of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets is Pride and Prejudice. Chapter 6, Gilderoy Lockhart. Ah, the pride of this man. Ron and, by extension, Harry, pay for their prideful theft of the Fort Anglia pretty much right at the opening of these chapters in the form of a howler from Mrs. Weasley, which magically magnifies her yells a hundred times as she shrieks, among other things. I thought your father would die of shame! Absolutely disgusted! And if you put another two out of line, we'll bring you straight back home! This is a shameful moment for Harry, but not just because the entire Great Hall witnessed this, The Howler also contains information about Mr. Weasley facing an inquiry at work, and Harry is forced to consider the impact of what he's done, the arrogance of his deeds, and how those things can affect other people. The Weasleys brought him into their home, treated him like a son, fed him, and Harry repaid them by (laughs) stealing their car (laughs) and maybe getting Arthur fired? (laughs) It's not great. And then there's the human Howler, Gilderoy Lockhart, who is arrogance personified. My guy is in love with himself, with his mm. face, with the mm. sound of his voice. Mm. He's famous for his many adventures, battling werewolves, traveling with the yetis, none of which we'll come to learn. He actually did in the manner that he presents these things. Worst of all, he's been at this song and dance so long that, like those memories that he's altered and the witnesses of the events that he writes about and talks about, he actually believes his own stories. For instance, consider the way he shows up Professor Sprout in the greenhouse. Oh, hello there. Just been showing Professor Sprout the right way to Dr. Whomping Willow. But I don't want you running away with the idea that I'm better at herbology than she is. I just happen to have met several of these exotic plants in my travels. It's very likely, of course, that he has no special knowledge of magical plants. It's notable that Sprout is described here as distinctly disgruntled, not at all her usual cheerful self. Lockhart's prideful boasts are abrasive and alienating. From afar, from very afar, from quite afar... He is accomplished and impressive, a a true celebrity wizard. Up close, you can't help but see through the act. Handsome, though. Sure. Handsome. Hello! Handsome. Lockhart is not crashing herbology to talk to Sprout about the Whomping Willow, right? The unsolicited Willow advice is the byproduct of his inability to not chime in and basically every single situation. He's really there to see Harry, whom he pulls aside, and then chides for the stunt with the Ford Anglia. Not because it was dangerous, not because they were seen by muggles, not because they damaged a rare and valuable tree, though all of those things are true. No, he is concerned that Harry's trying to skip a step 
on the fame ladder. That's right. Trying to be too well-known too soon. Of course, he is not actually worried about this for Harry's sake. He is threatened by Harry's celebrity, and the proximity to it is really bringing that to the fore. Lockhart says, Yes, yes, I know what you're thinking. It's all right for him. He's an internationally famous wizard already. But when I was 12, I was just as much of a nobody as you are now. What a phony! What an amazing display of willful ignorance and arrogance. As though Harry, the most famous person in the magical world, had never been exposed to publicity before the Flourish and Blotts photo op. Even in these moments of supreme pride, though, Lockhart tends to give himself away. Consider what he says here. In fact, I'd say I was even more of a nobody. I mean, a few people have heard of you, haven't they? All that business with uh, he who must not be named? (laughs) He glanced at the lightning scar on Harry's forehead. There you go. Looking at the scar, the symbol of Harry's fame, mentioning Harry's defeat of he who must not be named, the thing that makes Harry this figure of supreme, unrivaled celebrity. For Lockhart, Harry needs to either be a tool who Lockhart can use to enhance his own celebrity, or he needs to be acknowledged as a threat who has to be stopped. But pride comes before the fall. In this case, down the pipe in Myrtle's bathroom. You know, I like a chosen one that didn't get scarred. (laughs) Once Harry is allowed to go back to class, he learns that the cry of the mandrake can kill because there's no safer place, guys, than a Hogwarts. No safer place than Hogwarts. Don't worry, they're too young to truly kill you at this point. Oh, good. As far as I know. Good, good. There's also no more corrupt place. Hermione gets 20 points for answering two questions correctly. I can't. I can't. This is just... We don't understand how this works. Harry, Ron, and Hermione are paired with Justin Finch-Fletchley, a Hufflepuff, who reminds us how easy it would be for our heroes to stray the way Lockhart has. I know who you are, of course. You're the famous Harry Potter, and you're Hermione Granger. Always tops in everything. Hermione beamed as she had her hand shaken too. And Ron Weasley, wasn't that your flying car? Flying car idiocy aside, how many 12-year-olds would remain grounded amid this kind of hype, right? This is like, I could see them in a year... Ron with Justin Bieber tattoos all over his torso, you know? <laughs> Maybe Ed Sheeran, just right. given the physical resemblance. Hermione with like a nose ring and like, <laughs> anyway. Of course, what Lockhart and so many others fail to understand about Harry is that he's allergic to this type of attention. When a tiny camera-toting muggle-born first year named Colin Creevy, spoiler, rest in peace to my guy, asked Harry for a signed photo, the embarrassment Harry feels is magnified tenfold when, after Malfoy's mockery, Lockhart arrives and says, what's all this? What's all this? Who's giving out signed photos? Shouldn't have asked. We meet again, Harry. (laughs) Harry is described as burning with humiliation as Lockhart pulls him into another photo op. Harry doesn't want to stand out. What's to blend in? He's actually quite confused as to why he stands out in this world. Still, in the next chapter, we'll see that Harry in the photo refuses to be dragged into view. This reluctance to be in the spotlight extends to Harry's magical imprints. I love that. We get our first look at Lockhart's, uh, let's charitably refer to sure. it as magical prowess, in our hero's first defense against the dark arts class, the time for which Hermione has outlined in hearts Beautiful. on her schedule. Beautiful. <laughs> First up, a quick, quick 30-minute 54-question quiz. What is Gilderoy Lockhart's favorite color? What is Gilderoy Lockhart's secret ambition? What, in your opinion, 
is Gilderoy Lockhart's greatest achievement to date. On and on and on. Has a more vapid, self-involved person ever graced these halls? And then come the Cornish Pixies. Freshly caught, free range. Time for the hands-on experience portion of the class. Lockhart, now be warned. It is my job to arm you against the foulest creatures known to wizard kind. You may find yourself facing your worst fears in this room. Well, learning defense against the dark arts from a useless git would certainly qualify as a worse fear given the context that Harry and co. find themselves in. It's true. Also, little bogger lupin defense against the dark arts foreshadowing. That's, right. That's not literally in that room, but still, fun to note. And of course, Lockhart has very little experience of his own, so the outcome here really never in doubt. The little gremlin-like buggers are, they're nuisance pests. They enjoy chaos and trickery, but they should be, in essence, annoying but harmless in this situation. Released in mass in a confined space, however, without any guidance being given for how to handle them, the creatures quickly reduce the classroom to a state of chaos and ruin. Students are huddling under their desks, windows broken, bags and books flying everywhere, ink pots spilling and spraying, parchment shredded, Neville, naturally, in a position of mortal peril, hanging from Once the again. chandelier for dear life. Lockhart attempts a spell. Pescapisky pestronomy. Subtle little hint here about Lockhart. That spell to ward off pixies doesn't use Latin as a base, but rather English. And if you sound it out very slowly, pesky pixie, pester, no me. Yeah. Maybe not a real spell from our guy here. Good pesky dig. pixie pastrami. <laughs> mm. Ah. Mm. Langers, caviar, yeah. postmates, <laughs> me, hungry, <laughs> snack. Thanks to Zach Cram for that find there. This spell naturally has zero effect, and a pixie disarms Lockhart, throws his wand out of a window. <laughs> Anyone who is defending him after this, Hermione reluctant still to admit that he's a fraud, but a grown wizard being disarmed in that fashion is really an astonishing Shameful. thing. And at the ring of the bell, he flees the room, leaving Harry, Ron, and Hermione to clean up. Harry and Ron, on to him. Hermione, you know, still under the spell of those wavy locks. Trying to get on to him. Lockhart's <laughs> swaggering incompetence raises an interesting question, guys. Hey, Dumbledore, what are you doing? <laughs> For Harry's first year at school, the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher was literally Voldemort. <laughs> uh, Could have just been a bowl of garlic. You know, the smell, it was confusing. Right, which caused, aside from massive chaos in Bedlam, the death of at least two unicorns and the near death of Harry Potter, a.k.a. the Chosen One. This year... Albus hired a total jackass for the position. This is, in a sense, another example of pride in action. In a time of growing danger, the students or Hogwarts are being robbed, really, of essential life-saving skills because they've been given two teachers who— the first one is literally Lord Voldemort again. I, we cannot say this enough. The teacher of Defense Against the Dark Arts in year one is, is Voldemort. And then year two is just like as a fraud. Does Dumbledore think Lockhart actually knows what he's doing? Is Albus memory charm? That seems far-fetched. Or did the headmaster appoint Lockhart for some other reason, for one of his famous, deeply thought-out, long-range schemes? Always about the long play with our guy Dumbledore. Rowling addresses this on Pottermore in a post on Pottermore about Lockhart. Quote, Albus Dumbledore's plans, however, ran deep. He happened to have known two of the wizards for whose life's work Gilderoy Lockhart had taken credit and was one of the only people in the world who thought he knew what Lockhart was up to. Long story short, apparently Dumbledore wanted to expose Lockhart according to Rowling, 
The way he thought that he could do that best was to appoint him Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher where he wouldn't be able to hide behind his reputation. He'd have to essentially put up or shut up. Do you buy this, Mallory Rubin? Sure, though. I think the question, as is so often the case with Dumbledore, is at what cost? Yes, I think that's... Again, the fact that Dumbledore is flawed, that this great, brilliant, renowned wizard actually is fallible... It's part of what makes him so compelling. It's part of why he's one of our favorite characters. But we still have to ask, even if he is playing the long game and that's what he's pursuing, sacrificing a year of their magical education in a crucial subject seems misguided. One might say the crucial subject. (laughs) The crucial subject. Hey, listen. Don't knock ancient runes, you know? potions as well, but this is, you know, this is the frontline position. Right. So at this point in the story— We are starting to hear the idea of the jinx of this job being cursed addressed. This is now something that the characters talk about. You know, in the next chapter, Hagrid, who is annoyed by Lockhart's attempts to give him advice on getting Kelpies out of wells, (laughs) tells Harry and Hermione that Lockhart was the only, like literally the only person who applied for the job. And Hagrid says it's getting very difficult to find anyone for the dark arts job. People aren't too keen to take it on. See, they're starting to think it's jinxed. No one's lasted long for a while now. So the fact that something funny and maybe even nefarious is afoot here is kind of an open secret at this point. Yeah. Which I guess feeds into why the other teachers feel okay openly mocking Lockhart, walking around belittling him. It's not great for the esprit de corps of the faculty at Hogwarts. I'm just saying, Dumbledore, once again, poor manager of faculty and staff and material and resources. Since there's no internet among witches and wizards, what's their version of ratemyprofessor.com? Right. I wonder how they would do it. It's got to be like some like magical letter tacked up in the bathroom of the leaky cauldron or what something. Would, like, what would like Rita Skeeter have had to say about this? Actually, I think she would be pro Lockhart, wouldn't she? I mean, maybe a sincere role model of hers. <laughs> Great hair. Right. <laughs> Out she, there getting people to believe his bullshit. I think her thing would be, why isn't Lockhart the headmaster of the school? <laughs> Truly. This is one of the most accomplished wizards of our time. What do you think about he the He lived that- with yetis for a year. Okay, I got, I got a question for yeah. you. What do you think about the fact that Lockhart was a Ravenclaw? See, I think when people just hand wave Lockhart as a fraud, right. they're actually not giving him enough credit. To pull off the elaborate ruse that yeah. he has pulled off to achieve the level of success that he has achieved by duping people, that requires a certain level of intellectual ability. I'll say this. He's like a great knuckleballer. <laughs> he's got one pitch. It's the memory charm. That's it. But— He's really good at the memory charm. Yes. He is exceptionally good at the memory charm, and he's good at maintaining the fiction, at least until he interacts with you yeah. directly. Like, that's, that's again, the key yeah. is once you're around him, you see right through it right away. Right. But from afar, I mean, best-selling author. That's really? not nothing. That's not nothing. You know? Yeah, but he can put a spell on the pen and just have it write the thing. Quick quote quotes? Yeah. Okay, so basically you're saying that Gilderoy Lockhart is R.A. Dickey. That's what we've— <laughs> That's what we've solved on <laughs> right. this podcast. Right. But R.A. Dickey with an immense sense of self-importance. R.A. Dickey being like, well, I am the greatest pitcher who has ever played Major League Baseball in 120 years. Listen, got a Cy Young. Right. I met Cy Young. <laughs> I know I once traveled. I taught Cy Young everything he knew. That's right. I traveled to the Himalayas with, with Cy Young. <laughs> Not a lot of people know this about me. Chapter 7, Mudbloods and Murmurs. Malfoy's slur on the Quidditch pitch brings the magical community's deeply ingrained prejudices into pointed focus. He spews his verbal attack at Hermione after she insults his pride by implying, quite correctly, quite correctly, that he needed to buy his way 
Daddy needed to buy your way onto the Slytherin team with the wonderful gift of several Nimbus 2001s. Let me say this. You noted earlier. Great friend of the program. You noted earlier. You noted earlier correctly that Malfoy at least is not a Hogwarts professor. However. Yeah. This is what we call lack of institutional control. Right. <laughs> you don't have to be the one who's actually dishing out the payment. You right. don't actually have to be the one who's setting up the paper classes at UNC or the job at the car dealership, the Ford Anglia dealership. But if you're just turning away, letting it all happen, yeah. you're still going to get a show cause. Mark Emmert's still coming for you. Hey, uh, Professor Knight, come over here. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> I'm going to buy these boys and girls for some numerous 2000 ones. I think it'd be great for them, great for the program, have the, the, the best equipment. I think that's what we all want. Isn't that correct? Thank you, buddy, for your support of the Dillon Panthers. <laughs> yeah. And the East Dillon Gryffindor Lions will continue on their ship rooms. <laughs> now, Coach, we, we can't have these uh, fine athletes riding, uh, <laughs> you know, some kind of dirty cloud 56, whatever broom these guys are using. I don't know. What, they, what do you call these things? The Cirrus 50? My God. I like the idea of Buddy having a broom dealership instead of a car dealership. Yeah, come on down to the broom dealership. Let's show you, uh, <laughs> let me show you some of the uh, lightly used certified refurbished uh, brooms we got here. Oh. And Malfoy responds after Hermione calls him out. No one ask your opinion, you filthy little mudblood. From the way Rowling describes the reaction to Malfoy's words, it's clear that this is beyond the pale. For the Gryffindors, notably, no one on Slytherin seems offended. Slytherin. Tough stuff. Quote, Harry knew at once that Malfoy had said something really bad because there was an instant uproar at his words. Flint had to dive in front of Malfoy to stop Fred and George jumping on him. Alicia shrieked, how dare you? And Ron plunged his hand into his robes, pulled out his wand yelling, you'll pay for that, Malfoy, and pointed it furiously under Flint's arm at Malfoy's face. Thanks to his busted wand, Ron's spell backfires, leaving him, not Malfoy, to eat slugs as the Slytherin team howls with laughter. Harry and Hermione take him to Hagrid's where Ron, in between bouts of vomiting slugs, explains the meaning of the word to Harry and Hermione, who, of course, having grown up in the muggle world, are unfamiliar with the term. Ron says, it's about the most insulting thing he could think of. Mudblood's a really foul name for someone who is muggle-born. You know, non-magic parents. There are some wizards, like Malfoy's family, who think they're better than everyone else because they're what people call pure blood. Now, we already know this about the Malfoys based on Draco's book one recruiting pitch to Harry and Lucius's early book two bigotry toward Arthur. And here we see how that prejudice against Muggleborns manifests. Ron continues, quote, most wizards these days are half-blood. Anyway, if we hadn't married Muggles, we'd have died out. Ron also notes that Neville, who is a pureblood, can barely stand a cauldron up straight, which is also quite mean, but kind of illustrates his point. Blood doesn't equal ability. Hagrid, who himself has suffered from bigotry and persecution in ways that we will learn much more about over the course of this book and the series, tells Hermione that there is no spell that she can't do. Remember Quirrell told Harry what Voldemort taught him? There is no good or evil, only power on those too weak to seek it. Just like real-world prejudice, the bigotry against Muggleborns and Muggles themselves is, like the Elder Wand, a weapon, a pathway to power. By labeling a certain segment of the population an outgroup, thus depriving them of their rights, at least in theory, Voldemort seeks to concentrate power in the hands of his followers and thus 
in his own. That's what prejudice is, a framework for arguing that one group deserves the benefits of a certain structure of community, schools, uh, state, and another does not. This point of view defies debate. And at the same time, as long as people seek authority and control, it can never really be destroyed. It can only be struggled against eternally. And I think that's one of the themes that Mal and I are so taken with and that we love to talk about so much. It's not just death, the idea that we must struggle against death, you know, because death comes for everyone. It's hatred and bigotry and division. These type of things need to be struggled against always, even when, mostly when, you might even say, when it seems like those things have been defeated because that's when they are slowly taking root somewhere in the dark. Harry's detention with Lockhart, full of platitudes like fame's a fickle friend, Harry, and celebrity is as celebrity does. Yeah, thanks. Remember that. Certainly feels like an eternal struggle of a different sort. And then Harry hears it. Quote, It was a voice, a voice to chill the bone marrow, a voice of breathtaking, ice-cold venom. Come, come to me. Let me rip you. Let me tear you. Let me kill you, Daddy. (laughs) Let me tear you up, Daddy. Let me tear that ass up. Lockhart cannot hear it. Let me hit it from the back. (laughs) How do you like it, Daddy? Lockhart cannot hear this voice, and in time we will learn that this is because Harry, a parcel mouth, can speak to snakes, speaks snake language, hears snake language. The voice he's hearing is coming from the King of Serpents. This ability, however, is not something that brings Harry pride. It is something that marks him, as we will come to see over the course of this book, as other different, strange, something to be feared, something that's tainted. This ability is something that leads to him suffering from prejudice. Chapter 8, The Death Day Party. Ah, Filch! Madder than ever while suffering from the flu and having to clean up frog brains. But when Filch brings Harry into his office, which smells of fried fish, nice Mm. touch. Mm. Maybe it's for Mrs. Norris. Ooh, you know. Wow, great pull by cat owner Mallory (laughs) Rubin for the crime. (laughs) Yes, the crime of befouling the castle with his muddy Quidditch gear. We start to learn that Filch has been suffering from something else. The debilitating emotional pain of being a non-magical being in a magical world. After nearly headless Nick's diversion draws Filch from his office for a few moments, Harry spots a glossy purple envelope on Filch's desk. By the way, put that in the drawer. Filch. Yeah, come on, guy. Put it in the drawer. Come on. Don't leave your DMs open and leave no. your desk. Put what are you doing? that in the drawer. This is like the Hogwarts version of not changing the settings on your phone so that you need to use Face put ID for your notifications in. to reveal themselves. Just put it in the drawer. Why are you so lazy, Filch? It reads, Quick Spell, a correspondence course in beginner's magic. In the next chapter, after Filch, desperate to prove that Harry attacked Mrs. Norris, explains that Harry knows he's a squib, which, again, why are you yelling it also? <laughs> you know, like, anyway, we learn more about what squibs are and how they're persecuted and looked down upon in the magical world. Here we have Harry's deductions from the book. Why on earth did Filch want a quick spell course? Did this mean he wasn't a proper wizard? Yes, indeed it did. Well, let's consider that phrasing. Proper wizard. On balance, it is hard, certainly hard to feel bad for Filch, who, as we see in this chapter, keeps a, quote, Highly polished collection of chains and manacles. 
<laughs> in his office. But it is still important to note that squibs face real prejudice and to consider the weight that exclusionary judgment has on them. As Ron notes in the following chapter, upon telling Harry what a squib is, this helps to explain why Filch is prejudiced towards students. He resents them. He resents their magical ability. And it's easy to understand why. This is the antithesis of growing up on Privet Drive and then learning the truth of your powers and the reality of the magical world. Imagine knowing that magic is real. Yeah. Knowing what's possible and not being able to do it. Imagine that despair and that shame. We will see many instances over the course of the series of how being or producing a squib can alter life or even how the rumor of such a thing could. Think about the accusations in Rita Skeeter's book about Dumbledore's sister. Rita's fact errors in yellow journalism don't negate the truth, which is that in the wizarding world, squibs are lamentably often treated as dirty secrets to hide away. So often in the wizarding world, blood and ability equate to status and worth. And the fact that our heroes find that kind of thinking reprehensible as they're coming to learn more and more about it is a huge part of why they are worthy of our investment and why we believe in them and are able to root for them. Nearly headless Nick, we learn, was the one who staged the Filch diversion. And as repayment, Harry agrees to go to Nick's death day party, or jolly affair, and to tell Sir Patrick Delaney Podmore how frightening and impressive he finds Nick. Now, of course, Nick wants to join the Headless Hunt, which is a kind of club of sorts for ghosts who lost their heads and then thus have to live out the afterlife decapitated in some form or fashion. Sir Patrick, of course, delights in refusing nearly headless Nick because it says it right there in the nickname. Nick, you're nearly headless. That little little bit of skin that keeps you from being in the club. I'm sorry. Nick says, half an inch of skin and sinew holding my neck on, Harry. Most people think that's good and beheaded, but oh no, it's not enough for Sir Properly Decapitated Podmore. I guess not. I mean, listen, I'm sorry. I go with Sir Patrick on this. Anyway, (laughs) the manner with which Sir Patrick rebuffs Nick is very mean and also extremely funny, but this group, this little headless hunt group, is in a way an example of the way groups respond to prejudice. Patrick and his headless compatriots have repurposed a painful event in their life and have used it as a bonding agent. Surely being killed, literally killed by being decapitated is extremely traumatic, right? Yeah. Yeah. One would think. But in the afterlife. That's Ned. It's, wow. It's a point of pride for these similarly deceased ghosts to rally around. And there's many examples of this dynamic in real life of groups who take something painful and use it as a signifier of community. Not really part of uh, any community. Moaning Myrtle. Our first introduction to poor Moaning Myrtle is also a snapshot of the, in this case, literally eternal mark that prejudice can leave. Myrtle is so glum that Hermione and the other female students at Hogwarts avoid the girl's bathroom that she haunts because, quote, it's awful trying to have a pee with her wailing at you. It would be awful. I can see that, yeah. But why is Myrtle wailing? We will learn in time that she haunts this toilet because it's where she died, where she went to cry after Olive's bullying. And in her death, still, all this time later, she is being bullied too. Do you think I don't know what people call me behind my back? She says. Fat Myrtle, ugly Myrtle, miserable, moaning, moping Myrtle. 
Myrtle isn't the only one running. When Harry hears the voice again, he pursues it. He wonders how it's moving upward, whether it's a phantom. It's going through the pipes. The voice leads Harry with Ron and Hermione in tow to a corridor where Myrtle's bathroom, by the way, is right nearby, where a horrible sight awaits, a shining message on a wall. The Chamber of Secrets has been opened. Enemies of the air beware. Water on the floor. And, of course, Mrs. Norris strung up. What could possibly add to this horror and the fear rushing over them? How about prejudice? Draco Malfoy walks up at the head of a throng of students leaving the feast. Enemies of the air beware, you'll be next mudbloods, Draco Malfoy screams. It's horrifying enough that Malfoy used this word in front of a group of his peers and his enemies. The brashness required to spew this in front of the entire school is a different kind of horror. That's something to really consider. Malfoy feels quite comfortable just screaming this at the top of his lungs. No reprimand, no talking to from the faculty. He's just been shouting this. The unknown is terrifying enough. Pair it with bigotry, and there's little in the world as disturbing or dangerous. Chapter 9, The Writing on the Wall. Filch is in this horde, this approaching horde, and his prejudice against Harry, which stems from his fear of what Harry's prejudice towards squibs might be, manifests in a literal murder threat. I'll kill you, he shouts. Guys, no safer place than Hogwarts. Great. (laughs) Filch isn't the only one holding court, though. Lockhart's asinine pride and arrogance rears its head once again when Dumbledore takes Harry and Ron and Hermione with McGonagall and Snape in tow and the stiffened Mrs. Norris to Gilderoy's nearby office for examination. Lockhart says, Mm-hmm, hmm yeah, It was definitely a curse that killed her. Probably the transmographian torture. I've seen it used many times. So unlucky I wasn't there. I know the very counter-curse that would have saved her. Sure you do, buddy. The photographs of Lockhart on the walls Mm, are all nodding in agreement. Of course, we knew it. As he talks, again, this guy's office is papered in his own image. Dumbledore reveals that Mrs. Norris is alive, but petrified. Ah, I thought so. Yes. (laughs) What was I saying? She's alive. This guy is an idiot gas bag of the highest order, surrounded by pictures of his own smiling face. Dumbledore, however, is not sure how Mrs. Norris has been petrified. And there is rarely in this story anything as concerning as Dumbledore admitting that he doesn't know something. Because what does that signify? Dumbledore is this brilliant man, renowned. You know, we we mock. We don't always mock, actually. Sometimes we very seriously and, and earnestly point out the flaws in Dumbledore's approach. But his intellect, never in doubt. And so if something is totally mystifying him, we know that's a signifier right away that this is truly terrifying. So Filch, of course, is quite convinced that Harry and his friends are behind this. And there's that brief moment where we feel like Snape might actually defend them. But no, Snape asks, sure, uh, maybe you guys were in the wrong place at the wrong time, but why weren't you at the feast? The death day party? Okay, so why not swing by the feast after? We weren't hungry, said Ron loudly as his stomach gave a huge rumble and Snape's <laughs> nasty smile widened. Snape might be committed to saving Harry, but that doesn't mean he'll ever like him. The prejudice Snape feels toward James will always extend toward Harry's son. And Harry escaping punishment in the wake of the whomping willow crash has only exacerbated the injustice in Snape's mind. That Harry gets to play by a different set of rules, which is true, by the way. There's a brief but quite beautiful Lockhart-Snape dick measuring contest about who will eventually brew the Mandrake restorative draft, but no more is shared. 
And there's this great like little snippet of a scene where Dumbledore is described as looking at Harry searchingly. His twinkling light blue gaze made Harry feel as though he were being x-rayed. Another legomancy nod. Harry asks Ron and Hermione later if he should have told the teachers about the voice, and the response is unanimous. Hearing voices no one else can hear isn't a good sign even in the wizarding world. Prejudice would ensue. We see it happening already just from Harry being spotted near the scene of the crime and being Harry. Justin runs away from Harry in the hall. This is before people know he can speak to snakes or know he's hearing voices. There is something that all the students want to hear, though, and that is the legend of the Chamber of Secrets. Both pride and prejudice play a role in the schism that tore apart the Hogwarts founders. Salazar Slytherin's bias against muggles, against muggle-borns, had far-reaching repercussions. And after Hermione asks about the Chamber of Secrets in History of Magic class, Professor Binns, initially extremely reluctant and then just so shocked by the fact that any of his students are paying attention and engaging with him— tells the class, quote, Slytherin wished to be more selective about the students admitted to Hogwarts. He believed that magical learning should be kept within all magic families. He disliked taking students of muggle parentage, believing them to be untrustworthy. Slytherin's bigoted beliefs would inspire Voldemort's unquenchable quest for power and the two wizarding wars that ensued. Slytherin's Chamber of Secrets is a monument to pride and prejudice, his bigotry and the outsized importance he afforded himself in relations to his three fellow founders. Just think about the way the chamber is outfitted. It contains a huge statue of himself. Mm-hmm. Gilderoy would be like, oh, this is mm-hmm. wonderful. Oh. Great idea. And the snake of Slytherin House is a reference to his own talents as a parcel mouth. It's a direct reference to something that he can do, unlike the other three. When Salazar was finally forced out by his fellow founders, the chamber became ineffective. A doomsday device, the lair of an enormous basilisk that only his era, Parcelmouth, could control. The basilisk would be the instrument by which muggle blood would finally be cleansed. That right there is also a reminder that pride often goes hand in hand with hubris. It's not actually only his heir who can open it. Harry, a Parcelmouth, will be able to open it as well. Now, of course, Harry has a piece of his heir inside of him, but... Even so, in Hallows, Ron will be able to open it by mimicking the parcel tongue that he has heard Harry speak. One of Voldemort's fatal flaws throughout the series is dismissing certain types of magic and certain emotions and certain abilities that he thinks are beneath his acknowledgement, beneath even considering. And clearly, his ancestors shared a similar tendency to refuse to even consider that anyone could be as worthy as clever, as capable as him or his progeny. This kind of elitist thinking, blind Slytherin and Voldemort alike, not only to who is worthy of their acknowledgement, but to which enemies are actually serious threats. In their debrief, Ron says, honestly, if the sorting had to try to put me in Slytherin, I'd have got the train straight back home. This naturally makes Harry feel pretty shitty because the sorting hat, we all remember, came really close to putting him in Slytherin. It was only perhaps his own objections to that that got him into Gryffindor. Harry has never shared this, by the way, worrying about how it would alter his friend's feelings about him. The anti-Slytherin prejudice runs deep. Of course, as we've discussed, the anti-Slytherin prejudice is itself a form of prejudice, one that mercifully Harry will move beyond with his own son one day. But we I, listen, we should mention that one of the founders of Hogwarts was a bigot, a noted bigot, 
He was proud of it. He built a monument to it in Hogwarts. Can we just talk about that? At least let's just be legit about that. That's a real thing. Colin Creevy starts to tell Harry that a boy in his class was speaking about him when Hermione asked what about. Harry consents it. This, coupled with Justin, you know, walking away as soon as he sees him, can only mean one thing. People are starting to suspect that he is Slytherin's heir, and they're afraid of him because of this. And hey, he won't learn until Hallows, but Harry does have a piece of the heir of Slytherin inside him, not totally off base. Who is it actually, though? Who's up to this? Hmm, let's think, said Ron in mock puzzlement. Who do we know who thinks Muggleborns are scum? Harry notes that Malfoy's whole family have been in Slytherin. Could it be Draco Malfoy? In general, Harry has great instincts, a real knack for sleuthing, for detective work. Over the course of the series, he discovers so much that his professors, ministry workers, even Dumbledore never do. But this is now two books in a row where Harry's personal prejudice against someone, Snape in Sorcerer's Stone and now Malfoy in Chamber of Secrets, leads to a hellbent determination to catch that person in the act, even though that is not the person who will ultimately prove to be the culprit. Are they great guys? That's not really the point. Harry is so blinded by his own bias that he doesn't consider other possibilities. Chapter 10, The Rogue Bludger. Lockhart also often gets in the way. After the rogue bludger breaks Harry's arm, he's forced to spend the night in the hospital wing regrowing bones, that Lockhart disappeared. <laughs> who says that Lockhart can't do magic, guys? And there, Harry has a visitor, Dobby, who fesses up not to just sealing the barrier, but sending the bludger after Harry as well. When Harry, in his anger, threatens to strangle Dobby, Dobby says, Dobby is used to death threats, so Dobby gets them five times a day at home. Harry's heart then softens, and he asks... Why Dobby wears the filthy pillowcase that he's blowing his nose into now. Tis a mark of the house elf's enslavement, sir. Dobby can only be freed if his masters present him with clothes, sir. And here we get the foreshadowing from the end of the book when Harry uh, sets in motion the events that free Dobby. And Dobby then makes his best attempt yet to explain to Harry why he's trying so desperately to keep Harry away from Hogwarts. Harry needs to be saved because to Dobby and his kind, Harry represents light and hope. He is the beacon shining against the darkness, against the prejudice that can make life in the wizarding world so unbearable for so many. If he knew what he means to us, to the lowly, the enslaved, we dregs of the magical world, he says, and then adds, Life has improved for my kind since you triumphed over he who must not be named. Harry Potter survived and the Dark Lord's power was broken. And it was a new dawn, sir. And Harry Potter shone like a beacon of hope for those of us who thought the dark days would never end, sir. It's beautiful. When Dobby confirms that the chamber has indeed been opened, and more notably still, that it has been opened before, Harry tells Dobby that he cannot go. Doesn't matter what Dobby's telling him. He has to stay here because one of his best friends, Hermione, of course, is Muggleborn. He needs to be here to help her, to protect her. And Harry is not just saying this to be noble. He's not putting on a show. Correct. He is saying this because it's true to who he is and to what he believes. Mal. Yeah. I wish people would stop talking behind my back. I do have feelings, you know, even if I am dead. So please talk about something else. Please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads. Lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about these beautiful ghosts that haunt Hogwarts. The 
ghosts of Hogwarts glide through our story. From Harry's first welcome feast through his Horcrux hunt, but rarely do they cast their pale glow upon the pages as frequently as in this stretch of Chamber of Secrets, when nearly headless Nick, Moaning Myrtle, and Professor Binns all play central roles. If you think Myrtle's crying loudly here, though, imagine what she'd sound like if she'd learned that J.K. Rowling initially planned to call her Wailing Wanda. Yes, Wailing Wanda. The Pottermore post in which our muse reveals that initial alliterative leaning shows the ghosts were always intended to be more to this story than wispy window dressing. And so they were, teaching Harry and the reader alike much about Hogwarts, its history, and the fragility of human strength. JKR revealed on Pottermore that Hogwarts is the most haunted dwelling in Britain and that Britain has the most reported ghostly activity in the world. The castle ghosts known to us include Sir Nicholas de Mimsey Porpington, a.k.a. Nearly Headless Nick, the ghost of Gryffindor Tower. Nick earned his Nearly Headless moniker after being incompletely beheaded during his 1492 execution when, following a uh, misguided and failed attempt to enhance a woman's appearance that instead left her with tusks, whoops, hate when that happens, he was hit 45 times in the neck with a blunt axe. Really hate when that happens. Through Nick and his death day party, we also meet Sir Patrick Delaney Podmore and the Headless Hunt, who, frankly, seem like they'd be right at home at a Knights of Summer bro bash. Knights of Summer. Knights of Summer. That gathering is also our introduction to Myrtle, the mopey teen who haunts the bathroom in which Riddle's basilisk killed her with its stare. Much of our ghostly knowledge comes from Myrtle. For example, her ability to drench Harry and company in water when she's throwing a tantrum tells us that while ghosts pass through walls and pass through people, they can actually move water. And as we learn on Pottermore, they can also move fire and air. Because of Myrtle, we also know that ghosts are lightly regulated. Myrtle was in that bathroom in the first place because she was tucked away, crying after being bullied by Olive Hornby, whom Myrtle returned after her death to haunt. But when Myrtle followed Olive beyond the school after Olive's education concluded, Olive complained, as one would. And the ministry compelled Myrtle to leave Olive alone and return to Hogwarts, where she remained and where she kept plenty busy, not only helping Harry in chamber, but helping him again during the Triwizard Tournament and Goblet, featuring indispensable advice, yes, but also a truly haunting bath scene that made the shape of water feel positively normal in comparison. And of course, Myrtle also provides Draco Malfoy with a comforting transparent ear in Half-Blood Prince. JKR has said that Myrtle was inspired by, quote, frequent presence of a crying girl in the communal bathrooms, especially at the parties and discos of my youth, end quote. But she's not the only Hogwarts spirit inspired by someone from real life. Rowling has also said that she based Professor Binns off a teacher she had at university who proved incapable, despite his brilliance, of connecting with his students. Binns is rumored to have died in front of the fire in the Hogwarts staff room, from which he rose the next morning to resume his teachings as usual. Binz's droning has always felt like a great tragedy to us here at Binge Mode. Imagine how thrilling history of magic could be as a subject if a more engaging teacher taught it. At least Binz didn't have Voldemort sticking out of the back of his head, though. That's something. We don't get much time with the fat friar, the Hufflepuff ghost, who was executed by his fellow men of the cloth for using magic to cure disease. But we know that the friar has a cheerful disposition. So cheerful, in fact, that he's even kind toward Peeves. Ah, Peeves, the raspberry-blowing prankster, a poltergeist, belongs to a different classification of being and has a physical form, the ability to actually handle objects, which, 
He typically hurls or drops at unsuspecting students, much to Filch's eternal chagrin. Various attempts to remove Peeves from the castle have failed, and he lingers on, fraternizing with the ghosts, the closest thing to his kind. Only one Hogwarts ghost is capable of consistently managing Peeves. The Bloody Baron, ghost of Slytherin House, whose blood-stained body and sinister disposition forged an air of mystery around him over the years. Harry is among the few who learn the truth of the Baron's death, a secret Harry unearths while attempting to swing another ghost, the Grey Lady, to his cause. Helena Ravenclaw, the ghost of Ravenclaw Tower and the daughter of Hogwarts founder Rowena Ravenclaw, reveals the truth of the lost diadem to Harry a truth she would not have needed to reveal if she had not also once shared its secret with another black-haired student, Tom Riddle. In addition to Myrtle's olive-haunting exploits, we know from the Grey Lady's story that ghosts can roam across the land. After the love-mad Baron followed her to Albania, murdered her in a blind rage, and then turned the blade upon himself, they both returned to Britain and Hogwarts. If you're noticing that all of the ghosts above seem to have practiced magic in their lives, you're not wrong. In the world that JKR has crafted, only magical beings can become ghosts, or as she has described them on Pottermore, quote, the transparent three-dimensional imprint of a deceased witch or wizard, which continues to exist in the mortal world, end quote. While muggles can sense something, quote, creepy in haunted dwellings, they cannot see or become specters. It tracks that muggles might be able to feel ghosts, though, much the way that they can feel dementors, even though they cannot see them. Ghosts change the environment around them, turning the air cold, the flames blue. As Harry learns many times and always to his great displeasure, walking through a ghost or having one glide through you feels like walking through a sheet of frigid water. Ghosts are able to communicate because Nick's headless hunt correspondence arrives via transparent letter, and also those uh, party guests had to get their invites somehow. Their pearly white appearance is vastly more pleasant than the smells at their party, however. Because ghosts cannot eat and long for the pleasures of the mortal world, they sometimes allow food to rot, growing in stench and foul flavor so that they might hope to absorb the mere essence of it. Harry asks a party attending ghost who's passing through a plate of rancid fish whether he can taste it. From the book, almost, said the ghost sadly. It's no coincidence that Harry's party-going experience exposed him to many laments. Though magical beings can come back as ghosts, Rowling has been clear in the Potter canon and universe extensions like Pottermore alike that they are unwise to do so. Those who choose to return have, quote, unfinished business, whether in the form of fear, guilt, regrets, or overt attachment to the material world, who refuse to move on to the next dimension, end quote. But these are not fears that they can overcome as ghosts because ghostdom is not real life. It is a pale imitation defined by limited experience, eternal exposure to that which they cannot fully enjoy, and lingering corrosive resentment or despair. The series' most heart-rending exploration of this idea comes in Order of the Phoenix, when Harry, desperate for any possibility of Sirius's return, goes to nearly Headless Nick. He meets only pity and regret. Quote, Wizards can leave an imprint of themselves upon the earth to walk palely where their living selves once trod, but very few wizards choose that path. Nick tells Harry, later adding, I was afraid of death. I chose to remain behind. I sometimes wonder whether I oughtn't to have. Well, that is neither here nor there. In fact, I am neither here nor there. Nick can't tell Harry about the secrets of death or what knowledge the Department of Mysteries has uncovered. He can only tell him, crushingly, enviously, that Sirius, a man we know lived his life with certainty and conviction, quote, will not come back, 
he will have gone on. Olive and the other living souls might claim that ghosts torment them, but it's clear from this lament that Nick and his fellows are the ones who are truly haunted. Name, Jason Concepcion. Crime. It was only a little bit of mud. Crime, befouling the castle. Suggested sentence. Splitting our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Chamber of Secrets chapters six through ten. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Number one. Lots of in-book Ginny foreshadowing in this span of chapters. Hagrid mentions that Ginny was hanging around his hut. He thinks that she was there to look for Harry, but we know there to just kill those roosters who are a danger to the basilisk. Later, we learn that, quote, Ginny Weasley seemed very disturbed by Mrs. Norris's fate. According to Ron, she was a great cat lover. Cats are great. Yes, I love cats. Protect cats. But that is obviously not why she's actually upset. We will learn later that she was already growing worried about her own behavior, these missing swaths of time that she can't account for. And then Percy notes that Ginny has been crying again that's the real reason why. Lastly, Ron's reassurance that, quote, stuff like this doesn't often happen at Hogwarts and that, quote, they'll catch the maniac who did it and have him out of here in no time is notable twice over. Once, because, yes, yeah, stuff like this happens at Hogwarts literally every year. And two, Ginny just so happens to be the maniac Ron is referring to, That's though, right. of course, unwittingly so. Number two. After their detentions, Harry waits for Ron to tell him about the voice he heard. But Ron has news, too. And then I had another slug attack all over a special award for services to the school. Took ages to get the slime off. Whose award is this? Tommy Riddle's award. Question. Why is this still here? Why is this still at the school? In a few chapters, Dumbledore will say that not many people knew Tom Riddle became Lord Voldemort. Still, can Dumbledore not rescind an award given out to Voldemort? And even if you're not going to rescind it, fine. Pre-Voldemort. Can you put it in the basement or something? Can we get this out of here? This is shocking. Conspiracy theory? Do you think that Voldemort had Quirrell put it back in the trophy room? He was like, get my award for special services back out there. My guy. Interesting. My guy. There's really no explanation for why an award given to the man who became Lord Voldemort would be proudly displayed in the trophy room. Indefensible. It's really weird. Number three, when Filch returns to his office to resume his session with Harry, he says, quote, that vanishing cabinet was extremely valuable. We'll have Peeves out this time. My sweet. We'll just like to clarify that he is calling Mrs. Norris his sweet, okay. not Harry. <laughs> this is a hugely important moment because nearly headless Nick's decision to convince Peeves to break the vanishing cabinet is what leads to the vanishing cabinet being broken when Montague gets pushed into it which is what leads to Montague getting lost in it, which is what leads to Draco realizing that this Hogwarts vanishing cabinet forms a pair with the vanishing cabinet at Borgen and Burks. That is how he will smuggle Death Eaters into the castle in Half-Blood Prince. This is a massive moment. Number four. Speaking of Filch's office, there's a filing cabinet in there for rule breakers, Harry observes. Fred and George had an entire drawer to themselves. We also knew that Fred and George nicked the Marauder's map from Filch's office from a drawer marked confiscated and highly dangerous. Very strange also that no one seems to know about the map at all. I'm still like absolutely amazed that- Well, Filch isn't going to know how to activate it. Yeah, but you you think he'd meant, then why is it in confiscated and highly dangerous? Because he can tell that something's off. While he's frying his fish, he can tell. I would love to know what else is in that filing cabinet. Number five. 
When Hermione is strategizing how to get a teacher to sign for most potent potions, she says, quote, I think that if we made it sound as though we were just interested in the theory, we might stand a chance. Now, thankfully, Hermione didn't end up becoming a dark lord because the framing there, eerily similar to the exchange between Tom Riddle and Horace Slughorn when Riddle approached Slughorn about the Horcruxes. This is all hypothetical, what we're discussing, isn't it? All academic. Yes, sir. Of course. Uh... Number six. A few small name questions here. Lockhart says he likes to drink Ogden's old fire whiskey. Is that Ogden related to Bob Ogden, who we see in the pensive in Prince? Also, we get our first Podmore reference with the headless hunt. Is he related to Sturgis, perhaps? And Lockhart receives fan mail from Gladys Gudgeon. Is she related to Davy Gudgeon, who almost lost an eye to the willow? I'm sure, by the way, the answer to all this is yes. (laughs) Number seven. When Snape suggests taking Harry off the Gryffindor Quidditch team until he's ready to share more information about his mysterious appearance by the Chamber of Secrets message, Minerva McGonagall, Minerva McGallion McGonagall, chronic gambler and booster, she freaks out. This cat wasn't hit over the head with a broomstick. There's no evidence at all that Potter has done anything wrong. Zero. McGallion refuses. We cannot have our star seeker. Think about this. Suspended. Think about this. Yes. Mrs. Norris, hanging from her tail, yeah. appears to be dead. Turns out she's petrified. A message scrawled across the wall. Harry Potter at the scene. The Chamber of Secrets has been opened. Enemies of the air beware. Her, her students, Hogwarts students, shouting, prejudice bigotry, vitriol, spewing it across the halls. All McGallion cares about is making sure that Harry Potter's eligibility is never in doubt. I have a tease on the game this weekend. Harry Potter has done nothing wrong. Harry Potter could be strangling Mrs. Norris like in his hand. He'd be like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Just working on his broomstick grip. That's right. That's all. Mal, mm-hmm. I never thought I'd see the day when you'd be persuading us to break rules. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature that compelled us the most, and today we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup to a surprising rule-breaker, Hermione Jean Granger! We should say, a lot of people taking L's in this stretch Not, of chapters. No clear-cut winners in this tranche of chapters. No. A lot of misery, a lot of pain, a lot of concern. Everyone's yeah. sad. Literal piles of rotting fish. Right. Petrified cats. Mucus pouring <laughs> out of Filch's nose. Harry, McGonagall skirting yeah. the rules. Harry in the wrong place, wrong time. Dumbledore. All manner of things going on in his school Be under his nose. Only safe refuge is an out-of-order girl's bathroom. It's chaos. Haunted by, haunted by a, a ghost. Named Moaning Myrtle, agony and despair everywhere. So slim pickings, and yet, our girl, Hermione Jean Granger. Naturally, she knows all about the Mandrakes. That's right. And she is raking in the points on day one of classes with her insights. Speaking of Hermione in classes, it is tough to say if this is a credit or a demerit, but she earns full marks on the Lockhart Pop Quiz. The jury is still out, of course, on her ability to discern someone's character at this point because when Ron and Harry are going after him, she says, rubbish, you've read his books. Look at all those amazing things he's done. But she definitely knows how to retain information from books, successfully using a freezing charm to immobilize the pixies after Lockhart's flight. Uh Now, Malfoy's slur is hideous, but through that trauma, 
Hermione discovers that she has a lot of love and support from a lot of people here at school. Ron defends her with gallantry. Hagrid steps up and explains to her, hey, you're as good as any witch at this school. And that's got to feel great. And when everyone is desperate for information about the chamber, what's going on with the chamber? Is it, is it even real? Hermione gets through to Professor Binns, Mr. Boring Old Binns, and gets him to explain not only about the chamber, but the rift that tore apart the founders. I deal with facts, Mrs. Grant. When Malfoy emerges as the leading suspect in Chambergate, Hermione is the one who comes up with a plan to sneak into the Slytherin common room to question him. How? She's got an answer for that, too, of course. Use Polyjuice Potion to transform into fellow members of his house so that he'll spill. She's not afraid to break rules to see this plan through. And this, what a change in Hermione's character. I think part of what it is, is there is an element of learning to what she's doing. She's getting a chance to make up really an advanced potion. And if she has to break a couple of rules to do it, listen, the, the experience of learning how to do that is truly worth it. Also, gets the note from Lockhart to Incredible. get into the restricted section with a little bit of conning there by appealing directly to his pride, which says a lot about Hermione. Very who at this astute. Point, very astute, who at this point has an obvious crush on him, but oh, yeah. is able to identify the weakness. I'm sure it would help me understand what you say in Gadding with Ghouls about <laughs> slow-acting venoms. Incredible. Hermione says that the Polyjuice Potion is the most complicated she's ever seen, but that doesn't scare her. She is determined, even though proceeding will mean... Stealing certain supplies and, of course, bits of the Slytherins they're changing into. What do you mean? A bit of whoever we're changing into. I'm drinking nothing with crab's toenails in it, Ron says. Mm. When Harry and Ron balk, it's Hermione in this stunning bit of role reversal who's hell-bent on staying the course. Quote, there were bright pink patches on her cheeks and her eyes were brighter than usual. I don't want to break rules, you know. I think threatening Muggleborns is far worse than brewing up difficult potion. But if you don't want to find out if it's Malfoy, I'll go straight to Madame Pince now and hand the book back in. Hermione understands there is something more yeah. important than following the rules here, which again, huge change because remember book one? She's like, I'm going to bed before you come up with another plan to get us killed or worse, expelled. This is quite a change. But she understands she's starting to realize to gain that perspective. What's the most important thing? It's fighting. It's fighting the prejudice that is threatening Muggleborns. It's amazing how easy it is to do what's right when you have skin in the game, which Hermione now has directly threatened by these things that are going on. Shouts to Hermione Jean Granger now and always. Yes. Well, friends, perhaps you're getting a little drowsy. Great Scott, look at the time. We've been here nearly four hours. We'd never have believed it. The time's flown, hasn't it? Ah, yes. Huge thanks, as always, to our producer, Isaac Lee, and researcher, Zach Cram, who help us chase the voices every day. We hope that you all had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing... Chapters 11 through 14 of Chamber. Until then, remember, Dobby cannot let you stay here now that history is to repeat itself. That's right. Now that binge mode is open once more. Listen, Professor Snake, I want to give you fine team the best. That means your name was 2001. Now, listen, I saw the Professor McGonagall gave her that uh, number 2000. That's fine. 
I ain't got a problem with that. I see what the rules are now. I don't see uh, what, what the reasoning is and uh, why I shouldn't be able to buy this, this, this fine team that I support as, as a member of, of Slytherin House in good standing. Why I shouldn't be able to, to get these, this fine team, their, their own Nimbus 2001 is the most modern model. I think it'd be great. So listen, first Dumbledore had any problem with it. He know where to find me. That's right. So anyway, I have my guy bring the, bring the brooms over. And the issue was that you're going to send me an owl. You know where I'm at. I'm a mouthful of mare. Just come on by. All right, thanks a lot.